The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. You can turn your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 3. We'll uh, continue our series, uh, working our way through the book of Romans, and uh, hope your hearts are already encouraged and thankful for what uh, we can look at in God's Word this morning. And so our, our text is verses 19 through 23, so uh, we'll go ahead and read uh, that passage, Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans is a wonderful book. I've I've loved the book of Romans ever since I was in college. And uh, I like, uh, obviously there's there's wonderful things about Romans and it's such a rich, practical, and, and foundational book. But just on just a personal level, I, you know, I'm a nerd, I like organization, and so I've always loved the fact that, that Romans is one of those books that has a very clear structure, and it's very logical. You, you can, it has big pieces of the puzzle, and you can pretty easily see how those pieces of the puzzle fit together, and how Paul is laying out an organized argument that works from, from the beginning to the end, and I like that, all right? And... Um, and so, this, and so this morning, uh, we are going to transition from one big piece of the puzzle to another big piece of the puzzle. And specifically, the last eight sermons, as we've covered Romans 1, 18 uh, through chapter 3, verse 20, that section, uh, throughout that section, Paul has been arguing that all people are guilty before God. Therefore, We all are born into this world under God's wrath and facing God's condemnation. And it's pretty heavy stuff to ponder. Like, the last eight sermons in this series are not going to earn me an invitation to appear on Oprah, right? Because this is not warm, you know, make you feel good about yourself type stuff. But, but, and so today, uh, we're going to finish that section by looking at verses 19 and 20, where Paul Uh, pulls this whole section together into a clear, concise, but very sobering conclusion about who we are and how desperately lost we are. But it's often been said that the night is darkest just before dawn. And that's certainly true of Romans. Because verse 21 suddenly shifts from the darkness of God's wrath and condemnation and the hopelessness of sinners to the glorious light of God. And to the hope that we have in Jesus. And chapter 3 verse 21 all the way to chapter 8 verse 39 are great news. Which describe how God rescues sinners from from condemnation and judgment. And how someday we will be with him forever because we are safe in Christ. 
So, so we have bad news and we have good news. And of course, we have to begin with the bad news in verses 19 and 20. And so uh, that's where we'll start today. And so remember, as we, as we look at these two verses, that, that one of Paul's biggest hurdles to proving universal sin and, and condemnation is proving that even very religious people stand in very moral people, particularly for Jews, for Paul, the Jews, they are also sinners who stand condemned. So, so Paul's trying to argue that everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel because everyone is a sinner. And, and you know, it's still a challenge today to, to, to argue to, to, for some people to accept the fact that they need Christ. You know, the most resistant people to the gospel are usually not people whose lives are a wreck. People with lots of problems because they know their lives are a wreck. They know they need help. No, instead, the people who are most resistant to the gospel are generally people who think they have life together. And they can't imagine that they would need anything from God or, or that God would not accept them. So, so we saw last Sunday in verses 9 through 18 that Paul responded by stringing together a, a number of Old Testament quotations in verses 9 through 18. And all those quotations from the Old Testament affirm the depravity, the sinfulness of all people, including the Jews. And the first and last verses are especially blunt. Look at what he says again in verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And then verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Those are pretty blunt. And then verses 19 and 20 follow with a couple of really important conclusions based on this fact. So the first conclusion is, is that we have no defense. Now again, think of this in terms of the Jews. The Jews, they were God's chosen people, and most of them at least appeared to be a whole lot more spiritual than all the other people, all the other pagans around them. And so because of that, and so like many religious people today, they couldn't stomach the idea that they were just as condemned as other people. And how, how can you not think that we are better? So Paul goes right after the issue in verse 19 when he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, now this is a sneaky important point in Paul's argument. Because the Jews, they would have looked at verses 10 through 18 and said, Yeah, all of that is true. It's in the Bible after all. But, but all of that stuff about sin and everyone being wicked, that's about the Gentiles. That's not about us. And, and Paul here responds in verse 19 by saying that whatever the law says, it says first and foremost to the Jews. God is not just condemning the Gentile world. He is condemning everyone as a sinner. And, and, and so both Jews and Gentiles need Christ. So notice Paul's conclusion in verse 19. He says, the result is, is that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, the terms that Paul uses here and, and the terms he's going to use in the following verses all indicate that Paul is thinking in terms of a courtroom. So, so when we read through the rest of this section and really continuing all the way down through verse 26, we, we ought to imagine a courtroom. And, and in this courtroom, we as sinners are the defendants. We are the ones who are accused of wrongdoing. And God is the judge. And, and the Old Testament law 
is, is considered here to be the prosecutor because the Old Testament law has, has communicated God's standard of judgment to people. And, and, and because we, we fall short of the standard, the law is the accuser that we have sinned against God and we deserve his judgment. And in the previous quotations, the law has specifically charged that all people fall short. The law finishes its case, and it's as if at the end of verse 18, the law says the prosecution rests. And then God the judge turns from the prosecution to looking at the defendant, lost humanity, and he awaits our, our defense. But Paul says, we don't have one. He says, every mouth is stopped. There are no holes in the law's case against us. There, there's nothing that we can clarify that's going to make us look better before God. And there are no legitimate excuses for sin. So all that the defense can legitimately say is, I have no defense. I have no answer. The defense rests. Now, now that's not typically how we function, right? Like, like we all are really good at, at coming up, we're really creative, I don't know about good, but we are very creative with coming up with excuses for why we do the things that we do. So for example, you know, we say things like, yeah, I told a lie, but God understands why I told a lie. Or, or we might say something like, well, sure, I lose my temper, but I don't lose my temper as bad as my dad did. Or, yeah, I don't honor my parents like I should, but my parents have problems too. And, and, and all those things, folks, I mean, they, they're losing arguments, right? They're not arguments that are going to hold up in the courtroom of God. But we tell ourselves these things, and, and we lie to ourselves that that's enough. That that excuses our sin, and, and everything is okay between us and God. So maybe there's someone here today, and you are hoping that God will accept those kinds of excuses from you. And that someday... Based on those kinds of arguments, God is going to let you into heaven. And I hope that, that you will see what God says. He says, when the law makes its case against us, every mouth is stopped. When you stand before God someday, you will have no defense in yourself. Nothing we can say can withstand God's perfect justice. And therefore, what is the result? It says all the world becomes accountable to God. Every one of us is guilty in the courtroom of God. Every one of us. And that includes you. No matter how religious, no matter how spiritual you may be. So please do not think you're the exception. Because God is very clear that there are no exceptions. Every mouth is stopped. We have no defense. And then secondly, we have no human solution. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, now this is the first time we see that word justified. And, and justified is a legal term that, that becomes very important in, in, these two, in Romans 3 and 4. And, and it's a legal term, and it, it continues that, that courtroom analogy that Paul began in verse 19. And the term justified specifically refers to the judge's declaration of the defendant that he is not guilty 
and therefore not liable for punishment. Now, now that's what every defendant wants to hear, right? You want to be declared not guilty, and you want to walk out a free man, not headed to jail. So, so verse 20 once again asks, will any Jew be declared not guilty at the judgment based on his obedience to the law? Paul's asking his Jewish, his Jewish friends, will getting circumcised, obeying food laws, offering sacrifices, loving your neighbor as yourself, will, will that justify someone at the final judgment? And we could ask the same question of any religious system or moral system. You know, will being a good Muslim and following the Muslim ethic get someone to heaven? Can Protestants or Catholics be saved by obedience to their rules? What about Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, Hindus, or just spiritual people? Will anyone earn entrance into heaven because of their good works? And God is abundantly clear. The answer is absolutely not. So again, you know, if you think that you will, be, you will reach heaven someday because you are a good person, because you're a good Christian, because all, you know, I'm an American and Americans are Christians and, and American Christians go to heaven. Whatever it might be, you are wrong. You cannot be justified by your good works, by your family heritage or any such thing. So, so I would urge you, if you walk into this room today hoping or assured that you're going to be in heaven because of something in yourself or something in your family, I hope that you will come to the end of yourself and admit with God that you are not righteous, that you are guilty. And I know that's hard to admit, right? Like, like we all want to think we're good people. We all want to think that we are so lovely and wonderful and precious but, but we have to come to the end of ourselves because the only way that you will fully rest in Jesus is if you recognize, as we sang last week, that nothing in my hands I can bring. I simply have to cling to Jesus. And then notice as well that Paul goes on here in verse 19 to say that, that no one will be justified in his sight. Instead, he says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And this is because... The law reveals the perfect standard of God's righteousness. So, so when I try to obey the law, when I try to reach the righteousness of God by my obedience to his standard, I, I realize that I can never get there in my own strength. And therefore, the law does not just prove that sin is real. When I try to obey God, I learn very quickly that I am a sinner. Now, now that sounds pretty negative, right? I mean, didn't God give the law? And didn't he write it down for Israel on Mount Sinai? Isn't the law good? So, so how can the law just simply serve to reveal the knowledge of sin and just to condemn me? Well, and I do think it's important to, to just mention here that this is not the only purpose the law served, right? Like David could say, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And he could talk about how the precepts of God protected him and directed him and, and, and were good for him. So, so, so this is not the only purpose that the law serves. But, but, but the law 
here fundamentally reveals human sinfulness. Now, keep your finger here and just look at what Paul says in chapter 7. Chapter 7, and look at what Paul says in verses 12 through 14. This is a good clarification of, of what's going on here. Chapter 7, verse 12 says, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So, so God is clear there that the law is spiritual. The law is a good gift of God. But without Christ, I am sold into bondage to sin. Now again, we don't like to think that way. We like to think that we're good people and that we have it all together. But we need to hear what God is saying here. Because I will never truly repent of my sins and trust wholly in Christ if I think I have something to give to God that God needs. Or there is something lovely in me that will earn his acceptance. No, I have to come to the end of myself. I've got to see that in myself I am desperately lost. And, and, I, and I've got to come to the place where I truly and wholly and completely rest in Jesus. You'll never appreciate the light of the gospel unless you first see the darkness of your own heart. And I pray that everyone in this room has reached that point. Now, I hope that you can admit that you have nothing to offer to God. You have no defense for your sins. And you have no human solution for your sins. And so the only thing you can do is trust in Jesus. So, so I pray that every one of us, whether has or will today, come to the end of yourself and admit who you are without Christ. Because it's only when you do that, that, that you are truly free to appreciate the good news that's coming in verses 21 and following. And so let's transition to the good news and, and let's read verses 21 through 23 of chapter 3. So Paul says, Romans 3, 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God. Now, now verses 21 uh, down through verse 26, we're not going to go, go all the way to verse 26 today, but, but these verses, uh, pretty much everyone agrees that they are the central verses in the book of Romans, if not the central verses in all of Scripture. In fact, uh, Martin Luther said of Romans 3, 21 to 26, that they are the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. That's quite a claim, isn't it? And, and, but, but the reason he says that is because these verses succinctly and very specifically define how God saves. So if you understand what Paul is saying in Romans 3, 21 to 26, you are well on your way to understanding who you are, who God is, 
and how you can have a right relationship with him. These are very important verses. So I hope you'll really pay attention today and Lord willing next week. And, and so that said, uh, verses 21 and 23 uh, through 23 affirm three very important gospel truths. And the first gospel truth they affirm is that God credits his righteousness to us. Now, now notice here that the but now that begins verse 21 signals a huge and very exciting shift. And the suddenness of that shift makes it all the more forceful. So specifically, I mean, verse 20 ended about as hopelessly as it possibly could. We have no defense. We have no human solution. And all we can look forward to is God's judgment in hell. But Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest. So, so the, su- the story suddenly shifts from hopelessness and despair to the righteousness of God. But we do need to think exactly about what does Paul mean here in verse 21 by the righteousness of God, which is, as he says, apart from the law. And, and I think first and foremost we need to understand that when he talks about the righteousness of God, this phrase here, that he is not simply describing an attribute of God. Right? And, and verse 22 makes that clear. So, so verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't make sense that the righteousness of God, you know, that an attribute of God is through faith, right? Because God's attributes are his attributes. So, so instead, when he talks about the righteousness of God, he is talking about something that God gives to people and something he gives to people by faith. So, so theologians have often described this as an alien righteousness. Now, when we say alien righteousness, we're not saying that, you know, it's like comes from Marvin the Martian, all right? Because that obviously wouldn't be very helpful, right? So, so instead, what we mean by alien righteousness is that it is foreign or it is outside of us, but it is credited to us through Christ. So, so, so I'm not righteous, I'm a sinner. I've been a sinner from from the moment I was born. But by faith, Paul says, I can receive alien righteousness. I can be credited with something that is outside of me and specifically something that comes from God. And, And it's not just any righteousness. It is the righteousness of God. So God credits his righteousness to my account. Now, now that radically changes the courtroom scene of verses 19 and 20, right? Because if if I have to stand before God someday in my own righteousness, I am doomed. There is no way I can pass the judgment. I I am certain to be sentenced to hell if I have to stand before God in my righteousness. But what if God judges me not based on my righteousness, but based on his own righteousness? What will God's evaluation of his righteousness be? Well, of course, God is going to look at his own righteousness, and he's going to say, not guilty every time. I mean, God will be, he will justify based on himself. And throughout Romans 3 through 5, and plenty of other times in his writings, Paul calls this declaration of not guilty justification. And notice the contrast but between the, how, how, God, how Paul uses the word justify in verse 20 and how he uses it in verse 24. So, so verse 20 says 
that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So, so I cannot be declared not guilty in my own works. But then he turns around and he says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So how is it possible that a sinner like me can be declared not guilty before a holy God? It's not because somehow I become righteous. It's because I am not judged based on my character, but I am instead judged by the character of Jesus. And folks, it is an incredible gift. There's no more precious gift in all the world. Now, now it's really important that we understand exactly what it is that God does and what he gives to us because because this is the, the fundamental divide between gospel Christianity and every other religion in the world. And and thinking in historical terms, what it is that God gives us is is what separated Martin Luther and the Protestants from the Catholic Church way back in the 1500s. And and so uh, Wayne Grudem uh, gives uh, gives us here a a little bit of a contrast that's helpful to us. And so uh, he says that the Catholic view of all this, the Catholic view may be said to understand justification as not based on imputed, or you could also say alien righteousness, but on infused righteousness. That is, the righteousness that God actually puts into us and that changes us internally and in terms of our actual moral character. Then he gives us varying measures of justification according to the measure of righteousness that has been infused or placed within us. So, so in, in Catholic theology, the understanding is, is that God, it's not that he just declares us righteous, he makes us righteous. He changes who I am, and then I am justified based on who I now am, based on my character. Or God gives me the grace to do the things I need to do in order to earn the favor of God. All right? But, but the problem with that and, and the thing that, that, that struck Luther when he was coming to understand these things uh, as a monk was that verse 24 says that justification is a gift. It is not something I earn. It is something that God simply gives to me. And he doesn't just give me the, the grace to become righteous. He, he doesn't uh, just you know, make me a good person so that God accepts me because I'm something different. No, no, look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, so God doesn't justify me based on my work. God doesn't justify me because I've become something worthy of his acceptance. No, he declares me righteous while, in my character, I am still ungodly. So, I am ungodly. You are ungodly. I've been saved since I was six years old by God's grace. I've grown a lot. I'm not the same person I used to be. But I am still ungodly, and yet at the same time, I am declared righteous. So, so Grudem then summarizes Um, the the Protestant understanding of the gospel, and I believe the biblical understanding is this, that justification is an instantaneous, 
legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And second, declares us to be righteous in his sight. And I would add that he does all of this while we are still sinners. And I think that's apparent in verse 21. Because Paul says God gifts his righteousness to us when? Apart from the law. So so meaning, apart from my works. I do nothing to earn this, even in the strength of God's grace. He simply declares it. And I think it's worth adding here that once he makes this declaration, it is forever so. Now look over at chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8 and what Paul says in verse 1. He says in verse 1, this is a glorious verse. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, if you are safe in him, there is no condemnation. And then look at what he says in verses 33 and 34. He says in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And that's intended to be a rhetorical question. No one. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. There are no charges that will stand against us because God justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Who can accuse us before God and see that we are condemned before him? And of course, the rhetorical answer is no one. Why? Because Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So if I am in Christ, if I have been justified, no one will ever be able to condemn me or bring a charge against me. And that is wonderful assurance and comfort. Because I don't have to earn God's favor. It is already mine. You know, I don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder, does God love me today? Have I done enough to receive his acceptance? Am I allowed to go to church today? No, I am in Christ. I am safe in him. And so I can never lose God's favor because God will never be displeased with his son. So I know I will be in heaven someday. And that is wonderful news, wonderful assurance. And then notice as well that that all of this is a new revelation for us today. So so returning to chapter 3, look again at what he says in verse 21. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, now what Paul is saying here uh, is, uh, very simply, well, he begins with, but now. And that's talking about a transition from, from the time of the law to the time of Christ. But now, in this age, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested. God demonstrated his righteousness where? In the cross. God demonstrated his righteousness. He proved it. He manifested it when Jesus died and rose again. That's what he's saying there. Now, I want to be clear that God has always saved people by grace. No one, even in the Old Testament, was saved by obedience to the law. But it is a whole lot easier for me to rest in the finished work of Christ than I imagine it would have been for David, right? Because David knew that someday God was going to provide a perfect sacrifice. But he didn't have the full picture that I do, and it hadn't happened yet. You know, so, so David, when he sinned, could look forward to the fact 
that someday God was going to provide a perfect sacrifice. But I can look back, I can look at the Gospels, I can see who Jesus is, and I can see that it is done. And so God has manifested his righteousness, and in so doing, he has provided wonderful assurance for his people. But, but maybe you're sitting there wondering, well, well, how does that become mine? How do I receive this incredible gift of the righteousness of God? How can I be justified? Well, the second gospel truth in this passage is that justification is available by faith. Verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, it's important here to emphasize then that justification does not belong to all people, right? It's not like when Jesus died on the cross that he just zapped everyone with justification and now everyone's going to heaven, right? Because he says that this righteousness of God comes to us through faith. Now, now I want to be clear here as well that that does not mean that my faith then becomes the good work that saves me. You know, that, 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 yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm still a sinner, but I was smart enough to make the right decision. And because I was smart enough to make the right decision, that somehow makes me better than, and that somehow is what earns me with justification. Now, I I like how uh, the old theologian John Murray puts it here. He says, regeneration or salvation is an act of God and of God alone, but faith is not an act of God. It is not God who believes in Christ for salvation. It is the sinner. It is by God's grace that a person is able to believe, but faith is an activity on the part of the person and of him alone. In faith we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. So so God does not love you because of your faith. He loves you because of Jesus. But your faith is the means that God uses for this salvation to be applied to you. I think it's also worth emphasizing that saving faith has a very specific shape. Because if you were to walk around Apple Valley and and ask people, do you have faith in God? I bet, I bet 85, 90% of people in Apple Valley would say they have faith in God. You know, they believe in a higher power. They believe in God. You know, they, they might say, I want to give God a try. I want God to be part of my life. And they might come up with all sorts of of ideas and express all sorts of ideas of some sort of general faith, belief. And so God is not saying just any faith saves. Now, now I like how John Murray goes on uh, to give three essential elements of saving faith. And the first is, get there, the first is knowledge. Knowledge. All right? And so you have to know the truths of the gospel, right? You know, it's not just that you believe in God. You have to understand who God is, who Jesus is, how you have sinned against his will, and and the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You have to know the gospel to have saving faith. And then secondly, saving faith requires conviction. All right? I don't know if this thing is working right. So if we could just, there we go. Uh, conviction. And, uh, and so Murray says, we must not only know the truth respecting Christ, but we have to believe it's true. Right? We have to believe that it is so, and specifically, it's not just enough that we know 
and believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he was a great man, did wonderful things. No, we have to believe that it is true and it applies to me. And again, I like uh, what Murray says here. He says we have to believe that Christ is exactly suited to all that I am in my sin and misery and to all that I should aspire to be by God's grace. You must believe that Christ fits in perfectly to the totality of our situation in its sin, guilt, misery, and ill-deserved. Saving faith is the conviction that what Jesus did is fully sufficient for me. And then third, saving faith requires trust. It requires trust. And Murray here adds uh, another quotation. He says, faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. And this is, I love how he says this here. It is a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. It is receiving and resting upon him. So have you ever done that? Have you received Christ and are you resting in Christ and Christ alone? You don't have to live your life trying to bear the burden of measuring up to God. You don't have to wake up every day wondering if God accepts you. You don't need to come into church hoping that you can do enough to make up for all the foolish, horrible things that you did this past week. No. You can just rest in Christ. You can rest in what Jesus did on the cross as fully sufficient to save you from your sin and as assuring you a place in heaven. And you can make that decision right now in your seat, as, as Murray says there, to receive and rest in Jesus. And maybe you're wondering, well, how do I do that? Well, we'll turn over to Romans chapter 10 and notice that Paul tells us exactly what this involves. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So, if you have never received and, and you're not resting in Christ, then God says here to you what you should do. You need to tell God that you believe Jesus is Lord. And you need to tell God that you have violated his lordship. You have sinned against him. But you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And you believe that, that his death and resurrection are fully sufficient to save you. And so... You say, I believe, I want to receive, and I want to rest. And if you do that, what does God promise you? He says, you will be saved. And verse 11 says, you will not be disappointed. You will not stand before God someday at the final judgment and be like, man, I made the wrong choice. No, 
you will be so glad that you did. And so if you have never done that before, I want to urge you to receive and rest in Christ today. Again, you can do that right there in your seat, in the quietness of your heart. I don't think you have to audibly, out loud, do this, although that's a great thing to do at some point with other people and something you should do. But you can just pray in keeping with what God says in Romans 10, verse 9, and receive Christ as your Savior. And if you're not quite there, you're confused, you have questions, then I hope that you will talk with me or, or talk with someone that you trust here in our church and that you will receive Christ as your Savior. And don't leave today without taking care of that because it is the most important issue. Eternity hangs on that decision. And, but, but maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, that, that all sounds really good, Pastor. But, but I've done some really bad things. I've done some really bad things. And, and I don't know that there's any way God would save someone like me. Because I have sinned against his will. I've, I've, I'm, I'm bad. Well, well, I'm glad that you're asking that question. Because Paul goes on to answer that very thing with a third gospel truth, which is that justification is available to all people. Look again at chapter 3 and look at what he says in verse 22 and into verse 23. He says, for there, he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, and then notice he says, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, now since Paul just says, says earlier in the verse that we are justified through faith in Jesus, when he, the, the, the next statement, for all those who believe, we, we should assume that the emphasis then is on all, right? We are justified through faith, and then he says, for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. And if you're the person sitting there thinking, yeah, but I've done really bad things. Verse 23 says, what? We've all done bad things. We all fall short of the glory of God. Now, 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 Paul here, in context, is especially concerned about the issue of Jews and Gentiles, right? So, so when he says there's no distinction, he's saying it doesn't matter what race you're from. God is not a racist. God welcomes all people from, from all parts of the world into salvation. So, so that's the main point. But, but ultimately, verse 23 supports that by saying that, that, that we can all be saved because we're all sinners. We all have sinned. We have all violated God's law. And, and, and he says there, because of that, we all are falling short of God's glory. So, so when we read that verse, you know, I think a good illustration of this that many of us have heard is you should think of the righteousness of God as a target. And you're shooting an arrow at that target. And Paul says that our arrows always fall short of the target. They always fall short. Now, some arrows might get a little bit closer, but they all fall short. And, and you know, we're not playing horseshoes here. There's no, you know, no points for getting close. You have to hit the target, and no one hits the target. We all fall short. And, and therefore, because of that, we need salvation. So, so if you still believe, you know, that no, I, I'm good enough. God, God loves me because of who I am, and, and, and there has to be something in me that God accepts, or, 
Or, or look, at, look at my family, look at where I come from, look at all that I've done for God, and you think that's going to get you to heaven someday. Then, then hear what God says in his word. You have sinned, and you have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and praise God, though, that you can be saved. You know, verse 22 says that salvation is available to all without distinction. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what you've done. Christ will save any who believe. So do that today. Believe on Christ and be saved. Stop trusting in yourself or whatever it is that you're leaning on and rest in Christ. You know, leave behind whatever idols you've, you've served ahead of God. Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Receive Him and rest in Him. It is the most important, the most consequential, and the most wonderful decision you could ever make. And if you are saved, never forget what God did for you in Christ. God loved you when you were His enemy, when you were a rebel against His will, and He sent Jesus to die in your place. And when Jesus died in your place, he made it possible for your sin to be removed. And now, through faith, you stand in the righteousness of God. And when God judges you someday, he will judge you in Christ. Now, you can't boast in any of it, right? I mean, verse 27 says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. So I can't boast in myself, but I can boast in Christ and I can give thanks for everything that he did. And then from there, we need to continue to rest in him. And maybe you came into church today feeling really crummy because of how you sinned against God this week. You failed him in some tremendous way, and you came in feeling broken and battered. And, and, I, and I don't want to minimize the significance of sin, right? Because God expects us to obey his will, to honor him, to please him. But don't ever forget that your standing with God is fundamentally in Christ. And that if you are in Christ, God loves you, God accepts you, you are his child forever, no matter how you may sin against his will. So rest in him. And then finally, let's be excited about what God has done for us. And let's be excited to go out this week and to tell as many people as possible that Jesus saves. That there is hope in the gospel for everyone without distinction if they believe on Christ. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And here in a moment, we'll pray and, and wrap up the service. But this morning, I've made an especially strong appeal for the gospel. And so if there's anyone here that, that maybe in your seat, you have prayed to receive Christ as Savior, or you'd like to do so, or maybe you just have questions, you're not sure, but you'd like to speak with someone about these things. If you wouldn't mind just raising your hand so that I can pray for you and reach out to you, um, just, just slip up your hand so that we can follow up with you. Thank you. See that? Anyone else? You have questions? I see that over there. Anyone else? All right, praise the Lord. Well, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the assurance of the gospel. And Father, thank you for the rest of being able to rest in Jesus and not in anything in me. And God, I pray that we would all leave today with the assurance of knowing Christ as Savior 
and that, Lord, uh, we would go out and live in him and walk in him and serve him this week and tell others how they can know him. And so, God, we thank you. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.